Hello again, and welcome to our twice-weekly broadcast of, from Apologetics.watch, program where we deal with important issues in Christian apologetics, historical theology, and biblical interpretation. So today we are going to be uh, continuing somewhat off our discussion from last episode, but in a slightly different direction, dealing with the subject of prenatal infanticide or human abortion, and what a Christian response, a Christian attitude to that ought to be. And so in our last episode, we looked specifically at what Scripture has to say, what God has revealed on the subject. And today we're going to look at what a, the early church, what a historical Christian perspective has been on this. And there's going to be several important reasons why as we move into this episode. So I hope you guys will stay with us. So I'm your host, by the way, Luke Wayne, uh, Christian apologist and researcher, and here is my uh, good buddy Aaron, who works as producer and a thousand other things helping out the ministry, so glad to have him here with us today. And so let's not waste any time, let's get right to the discussion. So why do we care what the earliest Christians thought about the subject of abortion? First of all, was, was prenatal infanticide even really an issue back then? And the answer is yes, actually. We have tons of texts from the Greco-Roman world that demonstrate that uh, this was a common practice. They, obviously, they didn't have the same technology and devices and methods we use today, but it was often done through potions and poisons and medications that the woman would take uh, that would cause... A, a miscarriage or otherwise caused the death of the child. There were occasional attempts at surgical procedures that they were just as likely to kill the woman. Um, but you, th there was a, f there were frequent abortions, frequent killing of unborn human children in the Roman world, uh, in which uh, the early Christians were living. So they had, they did interact with this subject. They did have to think about this subject. And they did respond to it. Uh, and so what, what's the purpose in knowing what their response was? What does that mean for us? Well, I think there's two especially important reasons for us to know. The early church, the early Christians, even when they agreed on something, and in many cases they disagreed on a number of things, they don't automatically have everything right. We don't look to them with rose-colored glasses as if the earliest Christians knew everything and we need to just imitate them. We go back to Scripture, and that's what we did last episode. But it is important to be able to step outside our cultural lenses and understand how have others looked at the same Scriptures and wrestled with these issues. What, how did they, look from their perspective, read these same texts and derive an ethical response to a subject that we are still dealing with today? Did they come to the same conclusions we did? That helps us to be more sure, or to be more unsure, if, depending on if they agree or disagree, with whether we've come to an, an, an honest and sincere, sincere evaluation of what the scripture is really saying. And so looking at the earliest readers of the New Testament can help us it's, it's a window in, particularly if they're unanimous on the topic, for us to at least stop and say, why are they coming to this conclusion? Is it the same conclusion we're coming to from the same texts? If not, why not? And so it's a, it's a good 
it's a good barrier to put up to help us evaluate our own reading of the text. Um, likewise, it, it, if they, early Christians were coming to the very same conclusions, it helps us to know that we're not reading our political moment into the text. So relatedly, if Christians throughout all of history have read the Bible and come to the conclusion abortion is wrong, then you can't say that I'm doing so just because it's on the Republican Party platform. I'm not actually a registered Republican, but that's not the point. The point is that uh, politics aren't determining my reading of the Bible if that reading has existed throughout history long before the politics did. And while abortion existed in the Roman world, they didn't have the same political debates about it that we do. And so for a lot of reasons, it can be helpful to look at what did the earliest readers. And the, the, the biggest question is, can we get back to what the original Christians thought about this question? And I think we can. And so let's take a look. There's a few angles that we can, that we can go to to look to help us understand what, what the original Christians, the earliest first-generation Christians would have thought about this subject. And the first way we can look at it is the fact that the earliest Christians were Jews. And we know from Jewish sources that while abortion was common among Greeks and Romans, it was unheard of among Jews. They, they, it, they did not practice it, and they were known in the Roman world for not practicing it. So why didn't they practice it? Was, was there a unified ethic? Where was that coming from? And then would the earliest Jewish Christians have shared that view, or would they have had a reason to change it, reason to question it as a human tradition? So let's take a look at what, what it was that the, that the earliest Jewish writers had to say on this. And so as we, as we look, we see Josephus writing in the first century, the time period of the New Testament. Josephus writes, the law, moreover, enjoins us to bring up all our offspring and forbids women to cause abortion of what is begotten or to destroy it afterward. And if any woman appears to have so done, she will be a murderer of her child by destroying a living creature and diminishing humankind. So Josephus, he says this Jewish ethic against abortion comes from the law. He looks to the scriptures and he says, we are forbidden to take the life of our children, even our unborn children, and we are to raise up the children we're given. And, when, and if you go back and watch our last episode, you'll see that is exactly what the law teaches in Genesis and Exodus. We look through and it does indeed enjoin these things. Josephus saw that. I'm not reading it in. An ancient Jewish scholar reading those scriptures, saw that. Was he alone? No. Well, the, the Talmud records, remember, uh, uh, if, you, if you watched our previous episode, one of the important texts we turned to was Genesis 9-6, where it speaks of not shedding a man's blood because man is made in the image of God. And in reading that text, we read in the ba Babylonian Talmud, now admittedly, the Talmud was written several centuries after the time of the New Testament, but it reports this to be a, a tradition passed down from Rabbi Ishmael, who would have been 
a late first century rabbi. Um, so post-New Testament, but only by a decade or two, if this, this tr tr tradition is accurately preserved. But as you're going to see, we have good reason to believe that this tradition, whether it goes back to Rabbi Ishmael or not, is very early. Um, so that said, on the authority of Rabbi Ishmael, it was said, a murder is executed even for the murder of an embryo. What is Rabbi Ishmael's reason? Because it is written, whosoever sheddeth the blood of a man within a man, his blood shall be shed. And what is a man within a man? An embryo in his mother's womb. So the literal Hebrew reading in Genesis 9-6 is uh, whoever sheds a, the blood of a man within a man, by man his blood will be shed. And so Rabbi Ishmael read that, and he believed that the most specific application of that passage was against the destruction of an embryo. Now, you may disagree with his reading, but what, what he could assume in making this argument was that every, every Jew he's arguing with is going to take for granted that an embryo is a man within a man. And as we saw in our last episode, where did he get that idea? It's because the Old Testament scriptures teach that human life begins at conception. It was taken for granted in this argument and in any Jewish argument on the subject, that the human life in the womb was a man within a man, was a, a human life inside another human life. Um, so we see in Midrash Rabbah on Genesis 9-6, another early rabbi commenting, Rabbi Hanina, uh, 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 who is an early second century rabbi. He says, these are the Noahic laws. A man may be condemned on the testimony of one witness, on the ruling of one judge, without a formal warning for murder committed through an agent and for the murder of an embryo. So again, and he looks at Genesis 9-6, and, and he not only sees it as a heinous crime, but says that this is a rare crime in which only one witness is required. And there are elaborate rabbinic arguments for why that would be, but the point is he looks to this text and he walks away with the conclusion that murdering an embryo in the womb is condemned by this passage, is condemned by what is taught in Genesis 9-6. But so far, uh, we've looked at uh, two rabbis and Josephus, who was pre-rabbinic but is a Pharisee, which is the same stream of Judaism that led to, um, that led to the rabbis. So was it just that one line of Jewish thought? Well, no. When we look at a very different group of Jewish writings, when we look at their more apocalyptic works, which were not accepted by rabbinic Judaism, we see the same thing. Uh, I don't have it quoted here, but in the book of First Enoch, we have uh, in 69.12, I believe, uh, it identifies the destruction of the embryo in the womb as something that was literally taught to men by demons. That's how evil it is evaluated as. Likewise, in the Sibylline Oracles, we read, those who licentiously defiled the flesh and all who loosed the maiden's girdle for secret intercourse and all who caused abortions and all who unlawfully cast away their offspring and sorcerers and sorceresses with them, uh, the wrath of the heavenly and immoral God shall drive all these against a pillar around which in a circle flows an unending river of fire. 
So it's pronouncing the harshest eternal judgment on a group of people that includes those who cause abortions, those who cast away their offspring. And then there's interesting between that and... Um, uh, and you, you, all of a sudden you have sorcerers and sorceresses with them. And that seems out of place, but it's actually not. Because the word there in that, in, um, in that time period, in the Greco-Roman time period, was also used for druggists, for people who made drugs and potions. It was, uh, and so the, it's the same word that would be used for the person who made the drugs used in the abortion. So everyone involved will receive this punishment. Uh, that's the view that this strand of Judaism held. So this was seen as a very heinous sin. Likewise, among the, the Hellenistic Jews, those living well outside of, of uh, the traditional land of Israel, or like Judea or Galilee or any such place. And, and in the broader Greco-Roman world, we see in pseudo-facilities, uh, probably totally butchering how to pronounce that, but there we go. Uh, Do not let a woman destroy the unborn babe in her belly, nor after its birth throw it before the dogs and the vultures as prey. Um, so here we've seen... Hellenistic Judaism, apocalyptic Judaism, Pharisaical and rabbinic Judaism, all have a unified perspective on this issue. And where are they getting it? Well, the only sources that point to where it comes from all derive it from the scriptures. They believe that the law taught this and they expressed it, each in their own traditions, each in their own writings, that this was the biblical teaching. This was the teaching of Torah. This was the teaching of the law of God. So the early Jewish Christians, once Christ came and opened their eyes to the proper understanding of the scriptures fulfilled in him, cast off the human traditions that many that uh, that had been heaped on to the interpretation of Scripture, did that lead early Christians to repudiate the Jewish view and embrace a different interpretation of the text? Or, as in many cases of ethics, um, rather than other areas of of theology and salvation and and um, Christology and things like that, did it lead them to come? come to the same agreement, come, to, come into full agreement with the Jewish writers. Well, when we look at two of the earliest writings we have outside the New Testament written by Christians, uh, the Didache, which was written in, uh, scholars disagree somewhat, but around 100 AD, so right at the end of the first century, beginning of the second century, some scholars would put it earlier, some a little later, but we'll say 100 is a fair estimate of when the Didache was written. So a very early Christian writing, very shortly after the, the last of the New Testament books were written. Um, and the Epistle of Barnabas, an even harder book to date, but we know because it mentions the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem that it was built, that, that it was written, sorry, that it was written after 70 AD. And we know because it, uh, it speaks 
with a, an assumption that the Romans are going to rebuild the temple and that Jews will continue to dwell there, that it had to be before the Bar Kokhba debate, or the, before the Bar Kokhba rebellion and, and when they were crushed and Jerusalem ceased to be a Jewish city. So, and the Romans, there was definitely no rebuilding the temple after that. So that would put it somewhere between 70 AD, 135 AD. So again, in the middle, you're hovering around that 100 AD mark. We have, these are two very early writings. That's the point here. And they both contain an identical quote. An identical quote, and that is, thou shalt not murder a child by abortion, nor kill that which is begotten. And they both contain it in a section that is interpreting the moral commands of the scriptures, uh, primarily, though not exclusively, the Ten Commandments. And this is under the interpretation of thou shalt not murder. And it is expounded onto categories of what would qualify as murder. And thou shalt not murder a child by abortion, nor kill that which is begotten, is expressed by multiple early Christian sources, word for word, showing that this goes back to an earlier source than either of these two documents. And if it's earlier than both the Didache and, and the Epistle of Barnabas, and they're quoting from an earlier source, that takes it right back to the New Testament time period itself. This interpretation goes back to the earliest days of Christianity. And this is how they understood the Old Testament commands against murder, that it includes prohibition against abortion. Similarly, in the second century epistle to Diognetus, in chapter 5, we read, they, uh, describing Christians, so the they here is Christians, they beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. Now, to be completely fair, this could be referring exclusively to the Roman practice that was also prevalent in the day of taking children after they were born and just leaving them out in the street to die, um, exposing, as it's normally called, uh, because we have to come up with sanitized words for everything when it comes to killing children. But uh, so... When he says they beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring, it could be that, he's, that he has that more in mind. But it seems with the overall context that he's, he's focusing on the combination of the two, that when God blesses you with a child, you do not destroy that child. Um, but we move on to uh, more clear statements. So just as the Jews had their apocalyptic writings, there were early ones in uh, among Christian and Christian circles and their offshoots, the offshoots of Christianity, and and we find an early uh, second century early document. It was in the second century. We don't know precise date for it, um, but the Apocalypse of Peter, in verse twenty five, we read, uh, and again, this is a a uh, visionary uh, discussion of final judgment, similar to the Jewish sibling oracles were. And near that place, I saw another straight place into which the gore and the filth of those who were being punished ran down and became there as it were a lake. And there sat women having the gore up to their necks and over against them sat many children who were born to them out of due time, crying and there came forth from them sparks of fire uh, and smote the women in the eyes. And these were the accursed who conceived and caused abortion. So even outside of mainstream Orthodox Christianity, 
even in the, uh, in the uh, apocalyptic pseudepigraphal writings, we find this same thing universally held, that abortion is wrong, it is a murder, it is a sin, and we see rather grimly described what these, this particular writer expected their eternal punishment to be, or at least wanted to symbolize it as to drive home the wickedness of the act. So just as we saw across all streams of, uh, of Judaism, we see in every circle that you might call Christianity in the, uh, in the second century, in the, the earliest time period, we see this same ethic pervasively there. We continued even more. A Christian apologist named Athenagoras, who wrote, we say that those women who use drugs to bring on abortion commit murder, and will have to give an account to God for the abortion. There's no ambiguity here. We know precisely what he's saying. It's, it's quite clear. And we see likewise, lastly here, uh, just last of all of the examples I'm going to use today, more could be cited. Tertullian, the first Christian to write in Latin, in the late second and early third century. And that's as late as we'll go as our focus is early church and we'll keep that as early as possible. But if we went on into the third century and fourth century and on, I could read more and more and more and more quotes on the same thing. But I wanted to go as far as Tertullian to catch Latin Christianity uh, as well as, as Greek and Jewish. And so here in Tertullian we read, in our case, murder being once for all forbidden we may not destroy even the fetus in the womb, while as yet the human being derives blood from other parts of the body for its sustenance. To hinder a birth is merely a speedier man-killing, nor does it matter whether you take away a life that is born or destroy one that is coming to birth. That is a man which is going to be one. You have the fruit already in its seed. And so Tertullian too viewed it as murder, on what basis? Murder being once for all forbidden. He looked back to the same commandments and he arrived at the same conclusion. And so across the early church and the wider Jewish world in which the earliest Christians lived and came to Christ from, everyone in the ancient world who was reading the Bible. Everyone in the ancient world who was reading the, the, uh, the Hebrew scriptures, the law and the prophets that God had revealed, everyone arrived at the same conclusion that the ethic God laid out forbid the killing of unborn children. That abortion, that prenatal infanticide is wrong. And the coming of the New Testament scriptures did not change that view. If anything, it clarified it. It intensified it. So that as you move forward in Christian history, you cannot find an Orthodox Christian or even a Christian heretic that would permit, defend, much less praise the destruction of unborn children until our modern era. If there is 
anyone who is motivated by politics in their reading of the scriptures, it is the one who would try to claim that anything in the Bible allows the destruction of an unborn child, allows us to willingly kill an innocent human in the womb. I do not believe that I am exaggerating to say that the scriptures are absolutely, unambiguously clear on this question. And readers of those scriptures throughout history have known that until today when it has become costly to know that. Now is not the time when it matters the most for us to suddenly waffle on something to which all those who have come before us have known with certainty when they read what God has revealed. So let's not hold back in our witness. Let's not hold back in standing for the unborn. And yet, we are Christians. We do believe in a gracious God. Let's preach repentance and forgiveness for those who have already committed this crime. If you're watching this video and up to this point, all you have heard is the hopelessness that you are a murderer. Let me say something to you right now. I cannot water down the fact that God considers the destruction of the life of your unborn child murder. But if you turn to him for forgiveness in Jesus Christ on the basis of the grace that he has given by the death and resurrection of Christ alone, if you turn and trust that while you deserve even the wildest punishments described in the sources that we read, so do I for the sin that I've committed. Christ has taken that punishment for all who will repent and believe on him, trusting fully and completely in his righteousness. He takes our sin upon himself and clothes us with a righteousness not our own and gives us his grace. Please turn and find peace and forgiveness in him. But if you're watching this and you, you have not made that choice, but you are considering it, do not do it. Do not presume upon the grace of God and say, I can kill my child and repent afterwards. Don't act presumptuously and think that from there you will, you will suddenly turn in faith. Do not commit this sin. Instead, reach out to the people of God for the help and support you need to embrace and love and raise the child God has blessed you with. A child may not always feel like a blessing. Children are expensive, but money's not a blessing, not inherently. It can be, but it is not always, but a child is a blessing. I'd rather lose my money and keep my child. Accept the beautiful gift that God has given you and turn to him in gratitude 
trusting in Jesus Christ, joining with his people and finding support and care there. Finally, you, Christian, who've always been opposed to abortion, opposed to abortion, may this stir you on to action, to loving, convictional, bold, uncompromising action on behalf of the least of those among us, the weakest, the frailest, the most defenseless among us, to come to their aid in every way that we can. Well, I hope this has been helpful to all of you. Um, If you would like more uh, material on this subject or on many other subjects, I encourage you to go to our website, apologetics.watch, to continue to see more videos as we release them. Make sure to like our page on Facebook and follow our our channel on YouTube. And, uh, you know, if you find this video helpful, please share it on your own social media, your your own social media so that other people can benefit from it it too. Uh, this This is an important time for us to stand together on this issue. So God bless and hope to see you next time.